listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. And listen, let me apologize in advance if you hear airplanes. Because I gotta be honest, I'm recording this particular introduction from a cheap hotel room at a day's inn across the street from the Raleigh-Durham International Airport. Where I am because... I got invited uh, by this lovely group of people, the Triangle Free Thought Society. Uh, they invited me to come down here and speak to their group, to be their speaker. Which, you know, that used to happen to me all the time in my Christian days. You know, I mean, I made a living as a platform speaker. But since I became a humanist, I don't get invited to that many places. There aren't that many venues or, you know, I'm not that well known to them or whatever. But, you know, here, I came down here, I, was, I felt a little rusty, but, but the, the, the folks at the event said it went really well. They, you know, they were inspired. They felt like it was encouraging and helpful. Um, I talked to them about, you know, kind of how to, how to deal with death and how to be helpful to people who are dealing with death as a secular person. And, you know, other groups that have me come and talk about, you know, forgiveness or community building or, or you know, the kind of stuff we talk about on Humanize Me you know, this relationship stuff. And uh, I realized tonight that I really like doing it. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, there's something about a live audience and a live in, event and the questions and the answers that sort of, you learn a lot and you, you, you figure out what's important about what you're saying and, and you kind of feed off the energy of the crowd. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought, you know, I might as well tell you that in case there's somebody out there who's like looking for a speaker. And you might think like, well, I, I wouldn't invite Barty, probably wouldn't come, you know, it's far away. And you go like, hey, you know, yeah, I might, you ought to ask. I'll try, I'll come if I can. I like to do it. And I thought I ought to tell you that. And, uh, and you know, when I do speak, I, I, I find myself telling a lot of stories. And sometimes in the telling of the story, I figure out what the story meant. And I was thinking about that because I had this experience, um, I had this experience the other day where I got a text from a friend of mine and he was inviting me to a soccer game. You know, there, Cincinnati has this new pro soccer team uh, in the MLS and uh, he had tickets to the opening game. And he sent me this text. I, I got it right in front of me. And uh, it said this, it said, uh, Hey Bart, I know you have friends in town and, uh, and a lot of stuff happening. But I have an extra ticket to the first MLS home game on Sat on Sunday. I'm assuming it probably won't work, but you've got dibs on it if you want it. And I, and he said, "Well, so what?" And I, and it turned out I, I, that my friends had left, were leaving earlier than than that, and I was able to go to the game. And we had this great time in Cincinnati, won three to nothing, and it was very exciting. It was a sellout crowd, blah blah blah. That's not the point. The point is when I got this text. You got to remember this friend of mine um, who actually, the first time I recorded this intro, I like gave all the details and the name and how I know him. And then I thought like, maybe he doesn't want me to talk about him on the podcast. So this time I'm just sort of this friend I have. But I'll just tell you this friend I have, we've been friends for 20 years, but I would say for the first 18 of those years, like I knew we were friends and I knew we cared about each other, but I kind of oftentimes wouldn't be quite sure where I stood or how I was feeling about him. And sometimes he would throw me real curveballs. And, and occasionally I would confront him and say, like, that was a weird message. I don't know what you mean. And he would always go like, oh, I'm sorry, I suck. I, like, I sent you a bad message. I, I, made you, I made you feel like I don't care, but I really do. But I'm really bad at expressing myself. And he would always apologize, but it would always stay the same. And then when we moved to LA for those three years, I mean, we stayed in a little bit of touch. We connected a little bit. When I would come back to town, I would see him. But I, I, I always thought like maybe he was just mad at me for moving away. But then when I moved back, when Marty and I moved back, we started hanging out again. And I got to tell you, it's completely different now. And ever since we've been back, like absolutely know where I stand. Like he's made it absolutely clear. I'm glad you're back. And unambiguous messages of, you know, we're friends and I care about you and I enjoy spending time with you. And that was great. Boy, I enjoyed that time. Thanks a lot for doing this. Um, 
And this, so I, I get this text and, and you know, basically if, if, if you read it carefully, what you're basically saying is, is I have this ticket. Um, I could give it to a lot of people, but I would rather go with you. You're the first person I'd like to go with, you know, and we went and we had a great time. And on the way home, we had this conversation and when it was over, he drove me home and, and all the way through it, like, I, like, I have no doubt where I am with this guy or how safe we feel with each other in the way I did for 18 years. And, and I've talked to him about it. And he said, yeah, I, I, I've kind of figured some stuff out and I changed. Like he knows it's him. He knows it's not like magical or I'm not imagining it or I'm not, it's not me, it's him. And he's changed. And like, he's like my age. People don't, you know, think like, I know. And you say like, why is this so surprising to you, Bart? On the podcast, you're always talking about, you know, opportunities for growth and change. And like the whole premise of the podcast is like, we're going to make each other better. We're going to grow. And you have communities that are aimed at people helping each other grow and become better people. I know, I know. But like, it doesn't always happen. And it's not always easy to spot even when it does. And, and this is so unambiguous to me. This is a person who I felt one way about for 18 years and I feel completely differently about because he is making me feel different on purpose because he's figured out that that's important. And it just kind of, I don't know, it really inspires me. Um, and it makes me think that I can change. Which is good because there are things about me that I want to change. Some of you like, really, I've been this way my whole life. Am I really going to change? And I'm like, well, he did. I mean, look, I got this text. I, we went to the game. It's different now. Everything is different now. And uh, I don't know. It makes me want to keep doing the podcast. I mean, and it makes me want to keep reading books and trying to figure out myself. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking Marty's been trying to, there, there's some stuff that I've struggled with my whole life. And she's like, you know, you, you always are, you, you counsel people, you, you send people to counselors, uh, you, but you never go. You know what? I think this year I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go line myself up with somebody because yeah, I'm, I'm thinking it's possible. And I mean, this isn't the first time I've seen it. I've seen it happen a lot, but every time, you know, this is just really remarkable because someone's so close to me. And uh, I don't know, it made me think, you know, if I was gonna try to turn this into some kind of like inspirational moment, I would say, you know, you should stop and think, is there somebody in your life that you've seen change recently for the better? Is there somebody that's grown in some way? I mean, I have another friend, I, you know, when I started thinking about it, I was like, oh yeah, I have this friend who got into AA and it's real. he's matured in a great way. He's a much younger guy, but like he's matured in a, in a really powerful and significant way. And the other day he called me to do the amends conversation. And I thought that would have never happened before. Yeah, people do. They grow and they change. And, you know, if you have a story like that, maybe it's you that changed or somebody that's close to you. I, I would love to hear it. Like you should call the question line and just, if you can tell it short, just tell me the story. I'm just curious about it. Or you could send me an email. You know, I'm easy to reach at bartkampola.org or at humanizemepodcast.com. You know, all the things that they say at the beginning of the show and the end of the show. But I, you know, I just think it's so amazing because, you know, there's nature and there's nurture, but either way, like basically we get dealt a hand of cards and sometimes it feels like that's it. That's you, you get the cards you get. But it's always so exciting when you ask, nah, you, you get the cards you get, but you, you can play them differently. There's some, there's some truth. I, I mean, I hear Sam Harris at the door knocking, saying, Bart, shut up. You're an idiot. There's no such thing as free will. And I know that technically he's right, but it sure feels that way when somebody changes. And so, yeah, if you've got a story like that, I would love to hear it. I, I, you know, maybe you're going like, hey, your story about your friend inviting you to a soccer game, like, you know, it's not really a, a big wowser, but boy, it is to me. It really is to me. And I think it, if you stop and think about people changing, um, if you look for it, you'll, you, you'll probably be able to find it. If you ask people about it, you'll probably be able to find it. And I think the more you find it, the more you'll see that it's kind of changing our minds, changing our styles, changing our behavior. It is one of the true privileges of being a human being. And it's one of the, I mean, it's one of the things that like makes this time we have, this precious time we have, really, really remarkable. 
is is when we get to do that. There's there's kind of nothing so liberating as changing your mind or realizing you were wrong about something or that you weren't as good as you could be about something and figuring out a way to do it differently. And you know, the good news is, is that the conversation that I'm going to share with you, I, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to find out that it's one of those conversations where the other person talks longer than I do and more than I do. I, this is not a conversation where I struggled with interrupting, but she's really smart and she's really thoughtful about her relationship with Christianity and her relationship with her community and her responsibilities within those relationships. And I just think, nah, anyway, I'm not going to, I'm not going to build it up anymore. Greta Vosper is a very cool person. You're going to figure that out. And then in the end, you're going to want to look her up and you'll find her in our show notes and you, and, and there'll be links to her stuff. And she's all, you can hear sermons of hers and she's written books and she's super, super wonderful. But, uh, but, but mainly she's my friend. And so here's me and my friend Greta talking. Hey, I'm so glad to be talking to you. Well, it's fabulous. I'm glad to be talking to you too. It's taken us a while to get um, together on this. I know. And, and that's primarily because your, your life is crazy. <laughs> I think that's the first conversation you and I ever had was about how crazy my life is. But yeah, I'm trying to grow out of it. And I, tr- I tried, I tried to show you the way out of crazy, but you, 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 nevertheless, you persisted. I did. And, and we had to end up going the route that we went simply because of the congregation that, that I'm engaged with it. This wasn't just my thing to do. And it wasn't just me that was on trial these last three and a half years. It was them too. And so I needed to stick it through for them. And, and, you know, I'm, I, I lament what it has cost us in terms of time and creativity and energy to say nothing of finances. But, um, but I think that it was good that we held together through it. Okay. So like, I'm going to do the briefest summary and you're going to tell me how bad it is. Okay? okay. Okay. So what I understand my, my American view of, 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 of your life in Canada is that you were the pastor of this little United Church of Canada church up there just outside of Toronto. Well, it's in the east end of Toronto. East end of Toronto. And, what, and the name of the church is? West Hill United. West Hill. I knew that. Okay. So you have been the pastor of West Hill for a long time. Yes. Okay. And during that time, you completed your own transition to the place where you were like, I'm, I'm an openly atheist person and I'm pursuing goodness and love and meaning as an openly non-theistic person. Yes. And, and at some point about four years ago, this came to the attention of the United Church of Canada's larger governing body. Um, it wasn't really the, no, it wasn't the larger uh, governing body. It was just one step, one and a half steps up from me. Um, the conference, uh, the United Church was, has just reorganized. But at that point in time, it had four levels. Uh, the congregation was the first, the presbytery, the second, the third was the conference. And it was the conference that uh, got riled. And the, higher than that is the general council. Okay. So those, those have all been shifted and changed now, but, it, but that's who it was. It wasn't the larger body. But at that point, at that point, like your congregation, they were like, we love Greta and we've kind of, we're kind of all going this way together, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah and I mean, I'm sure some people left the church and some people came to the church, but like in the end, you're like this nice church in Toronto pursuing a meaningful life and loving relationships and all the kind of stuff that like I love to talk about. Um, you're doing that openly. And then, and then the, the higher ups in your denomination of this, what people would say is a Christian denomination. They say, listen, like one of the key tenets of being part of our denomination is that you gotta be, you, you gotta believe in God. 
Yeah, it was a little more complicated than that. Um, the denomination we the, the denomination knew what we'd been doing since two thousand and four, two thousand and five, um, and I identified as an atheist in two thousand and thirteen. So you know things have been going along pretty um, smoothly uh, until uh, two thousand and fifteen when I sent an open letter to the moderator and suggesting that we need to stop investing all our moral authority in a supernatural being, um, that, that we needed to articulate moral authority um, on grounds that we could substantiate uh, or agree to. Because if we, if we said, you know, we get all our truths, all our goodness, all our understanding of what's right and what's wrong from this supernatural being that we call God, uh, we have to allow that everybody else has the right to make those claims as well. And that, of course, was the my letter was in response to the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris. And I believed that we needed to walk away from that, what I consider to be the idolatry of the language of Christianity. So my denomination had long been teaching non-theism or post-theism in its theological colleges. I was certainly taught that. Um, and so it, it seemed ludicrous for us to continue to uh, put prayers on our website that suggest that there's this divine being that's going to hold us all and make us all feel better. So there were already a bunch of post-theists running around the United Church. Like you weren't the only one. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, when I graduated in, in 19, when did I graduate? 1990. Um, the, the theological education I had been exposed to uh, is radically different from what most people on the street would think a clergy person has to study in order to get ordained. So we wrestled with concepts of God. Uh, we were not challenged to strengthen our personal relationship with God, which is what would happen in a in a in a you know evangelical uh, college or a Bible college, right? We were challenged to wrestle with different concepts of God as they had been expressed throughout the the history of Christianity and before that, right? So we were we wrestled with those. Um, we explored the Bible as a human construction embedded in a historical timeline that it failed sometimes to represent accurately. Um, and we explored the gospel stories, um, which were which were written decades after Jesus died. So so the whole all of their claims were called into question. And so yeah, so there's where that's where it started. Okay, so so when you were learning all that stuff, to what end? Like like when when you were being trained in that, they were like, "Hey, you mm -hmm. need to think about this and look at this, and we're going to analyze mm -hmm. this because all of this will help you do what? Like, what was the point of being a minister, or what was the point of having a church to those it, people? It brought it brought us into relationship with a with a moral code that we had to struggle to make coherent. And it was our privilege and responsibility then to invite our congregations to engage that moral code uh, in their own personal lives, in their relationships with others, uh, in their engagement with the, with the wider world. And, and we got that moral code through studying scripture uh, and examining it in the light of 20th century uh, reality and the complexities that the 20th century had invited into uh, human existence. Um, so we used a structuralist approach to the Bible and, and most of the stuff that we would say is attributed or purported to have been said by Jesus. Most of those things seem to come from authors who were claiming that we needed to have a different understanding of relationship, our different understanding of ourselves and, and our engagement with one another. And so it called that uh, better relationship out of us. So really that's what we were that's what I believed that I was being, you know, invited to do within the denomination. And so you, so, so when texts. you say invited into, like you're like Christianity is this long process of a group of people trying to figure out what's right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And like we've, you know, we're part of that process, but like the process keeps going and you're like, we're post like the process is interesting and it's important because it's our history, but the conclusion that that process has brought us to is that morality is this thing that we humans make for ourselves. 
and that yeah, Christianity it's a moving is, target. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It has to be. I mean, if you say you have to go to the Bible to figure out whether something is right or wrong, you're you've got pretty much free reign to do anything because the Bible doesn't comment on almost every situation we would ever find ourselves in in the 21st century, right? So, so we have to take you know some of the impetus towards good and and translate it into contemporary realities and and try to work with them and that's the struggle of being you know a pastoral theologian in the 21st century so then you came around basically at, 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 in 2015 and you said listen we've reached the point where we need to not just a few of us outliers but like as a as a christian body we need to recognize that like our Christianity has taken us beyond theism yeah. and we need yeah. to start articulating right and wrong from a different kind of moral framework or from a different, using a different narrative. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically where I was that we, that we needed to let go of some of the, some of the, you know, artifacts of Christianity, which, which include, you know, prayer to a supernatural God. Um, if, if what we're really talking about are concepts and concepts, you know, shoot me in the head and all my concepts are gone, right? Concepts reside in the human brain. Um, and, and we can, we can talk about them because we, we put human words around them, but that doesn't mean that they exist, um, separate and distinct and can impose, uh, their strengths or their weaknesses upon us, right? We, we're in, we're in charge of those things. Yeah. We're running this process here. That's right. So, so the. You know, it was in 1992 that, that the United Church's Authority and Interpretation of Scripture document was received by its highest court. And that document, you know, challenged clergy to bring their congregations up to speed uh, with contemporary critical scholarship. Um, and it encouraged congregations to engage in that study. And it gave, you know, it even listed historical criticism, literary criticism, feminist criticism. You know, it, it gave them the tools and said, these are the tools you need to explore the Bible with. And then 20 years later, it made the Bible at, no, at that meeting, um, when that report landed on the floor of the general council, it like all hell broke out because um, half of the people who were there were lay people who had never heard any of that stuff. Right. So they were like, what? Like the, the, the Bible isn't, isn't, isn't the authoritative word of God for all time. Like they were flabbergasted. So they couldn't, they tried to pass a, a motion uh, that, that said that the Bible was, a foundational document and such a furor arose that they had to say it was uh, the bible is foundational document they couldn't say b or a because the argument was too big but clearly they were pushing us to see it as something else in two, 20 years later a, a very conservative contingent who is 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 emphatic about shifting the church in a conservative direction um pulled sort of this sleight of hand and ended up having the denomination uh, say that the Bible is its foundational authority, right? So, and that was not done by vote or by consensus of the members of the United Church of Canada. Um, it was it was handily placed there uh, and no one questioned it, right? I questioned it, but I don't have any power. <laughs> so I have this image of this denomination that's, that's over over time is shifting to a more progressive a more secular approach the clergy are out in front and the theologians and the seminaries are out in front and they're going like they're all liberal they're doing feminist this and deconstruction that and all that stuff and the congregation are sort of like wait we, <laughs> we we're still good evangelicals like we, we we're still believers many of us um and 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 at some point there were there the concert the, the folks that wanted to make it more traditionally supernaturally Christian. They they got control of the of the of the of the of the, of the structure. I don't think they cared what the beliefs of the denomination were. Uh, what they were trying to do was uh, be attractive, become attractive to the only immigrant population that they could possibly appeal to. Uh, there were three growing Im immigrant populations to Canada, and our religious uh, membership has always reflected immigration. Mm -hmm. So the only religious immigrants that were arriving were Muslim, Roman Catholic, or Evangelical Protestants. Well, the Muslims and the Roman Catholics were not going to be attracted 
we couldn't we couldn't pull them into the United Church, but we could shift our doctrine and become attractive to evangelical uh, Protestants who might be coming into the country. So let's make sure we have the Bible there as our prim primary text, and let's make sure that we shift in this direction. So it had nothing to do with the beliefs of the of the denomination; it had everything to do with the pragmatic choice. It was the wrong choice because the graph, the pie chart they were using was only about religion. If they had actually used the pie chart of immigration or of, you know, the general population, they would have seen that the largest and fastest growing segment of our population were people with no religious affiliation, same as in the United States, right? So we have, we have been attracting people who are leaving religious countries who are arriving here and leaving um, religious traditions. Uh, I hear over and again, you know, yeah, when but, people but, hold but, up ideas of people going to join, you know, they, their, their churches, they often do it. They didn't go to church in their own country, but they're so isolated when they arrive here as immigrants that they find a church that they can see their people at, right? That's what I hear people saying. Yeah, um, but the, but the other thing is, is that, I mean, you may be right about the demographics, but the evangelical Protestants, like they may be like you, you may say what the people that don't affiliate or aren't connected any, any, you know, they're secular, but they're not joiners. And so if you're trying to save a church, if you're trying to attract members, the people you want to appeal to, it would seem to me, are the people that actually join churches. And well, that's uh, certainly that's what they were doing. Yeah. In When I started Sunday school and I, I, I find it amusing that the United Church's decline in membership started the day I started Sunday school, essentially. Um, at that point in the 1960s, there's a couple of things that had an influence over the decline uh, of the United Church in Canada. One was universal health care, which came into play in the very early 1960s. And two was the education of the people in the pews. So we brought out a contemporary Christian um, um, curriculum, which presented contemporary critical scholarship. So, and that's the curriculum that I went to Sunday school with. So I never, I was never taught about a judgmental authority God figure. Uh, God was love, a, a, an active verb. That's how we talked about it. Jesus was uh, a guy who could teach me stuff about my world, taught me to skate, apparently, my parents tell me, um, which is why I can't skate, I'm sure. Um, but but that was in the 1960s. So the United Church, what, what holds churches together uh, is not so much belief, I don't think, as it is what happens when people are together in those kinds of communities. And I use, that, I use the phrase, people are falling in love with being together. And in the 1960s, when our churches were huge and programs were running and we had, you know, a thousand kids in the Sunday school, um, that's what people were doing. They were falling in love with being together, but you couldn't keep them there because of religious belief, because the provision of universal health care and other social um, programs that provided support uh, for income, for all kinds of things, those mitigate the attraction of a supernatural deity. You take those things away and, and the rise of, of conservative Christianity will return. Um, but so that's one thing. But you, you tell people in the pews, you tell them, that you don't believe in a supernatural theological deity, that God is love, right? Then they don't need to be there to hear that. The thing that would keep them coming back to the church is the thing that we that we are that we are going to experience a huge loss of in the next ten years, um, and that and we've been losing it since the 1960s. But it's the social capital that's been invested in churches. And if we had continued, if we had been honest and changed our language and stopped talking about God and started talking about love and living in right relationship with one another and what that means and what it calls out of us and what the challenges are related to that and lament the losses and celebrate the, you know, the, the gains, then I think we would have created something that people might have remained in. But you can't tell them that God doesn't mean anything and then have them stand up and sing, you know, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, right? Like that just doesn't work. So the dissonance between those two things, um, I think, had a big thing to do with people leaving the church. And if any denomination had a responsibility to its people to provide that, it was the United Church of Canada. And, and they failed to do so. They failed but, to have but, that but so, so I guess what I'm hearing you say is like, it wasn't just you. You were kind of the representative mm -hmm. or you, you, you were kind of like the symbolic, you know, 
representative of this, like, let, now, now let's go the other way. Let's, let's, let's finally actually embrace who we really are and be a church of people who don't believe in God. Well, and, that, and see, see, my congregation is not a church, not a congregation of people that don't believe in God. Um, I don't know what people in my congregation believe. I have no idea. Right. People say, well, how many how many traditional believers are there? I, I don't know. Do you really not know? I really don't know. We have never asked anyone that. So there are people who have been there throughout this whole thing. I have no idea what they believe. And it doesn't matter because the language that we use is theologically non-exclusive. So if some and. I, I tell this story. Um, a member of my congregation told me one time, and she said there had been a woman who had been coming to the church for several weeks. And she was sitting beside her one Sunday, and she looked over and she said, does she ever talk about God? And the member of the congregation said, that's all she ever talks about. Now, I know that if they had been two, two pews you know, back and three seats over, the person would have gone, oh, my God, no, she's, she's an atheist, right? Like, we don't know. I don't know. But some people, people who have a God framework, hear me talking about what that God would challenge them to live like in this world, right? In this complex world. People who don't have a belief in God, hear me talking about the challenge of trying to live uh, in this world uh, and to do it well. So it, the, it's getting underneath um, to a common lexicon that people can embrace. And it doesn't discriminate based on belief. Whereas the, the language in every other United Church in this country, pretty much, is an exclusive language. That's why I say the language is idolatrous. Like we, we've made an idol of language because that's the thing we have to keep at all costs is the language that says we believe in God. And if you ask every clergy person in the United Church of Canada to complete the sentence, when I use the word God, I mean dot, 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 you would probably come up with hundreds of different oh, yeah. definitions like no one there is not a single one yet if you if you stand up in the pulpit and you call people to pray to god right then they have an idea that you believe in a certain supernatural interventionist kind of god person and you may not at all right so i'm just saying we need to use language that represents our beliefs accurately and in a way that the people on the street would understand what we are saying instead of couching it in these terms. But that's funny because like you go like, we need to use language that reflects our beliefs. And I go like, well, what are the people in your congregation you believe? And you go like, I have no idea. That's right. So, so what language can you use that reflects their beliefs? Well, their, their beliefs are centered around values. Their beliefs are not necessarily in uh, whether there's a God or whether there's not a God or whether reality is as we see it or you know, our brains are doing weird things to us. It's not, it's not based in beliefs. They believe that they are to be people who seek even through the most difficult path to be living in right relationship with themselves, with others and with the planet, uh, which means future generations. So, and, okay. So I believe that too. Yeah. Right. I believe that too. Right. And so, but then when the chips are down mm -hmm. and I'm feeling bad and I go like, God, this being a, you know, a loving person is really hard. Like I have to sort of go back to like, why am I doing this? Like, you know, what, what makes, what, you know, I don't feel like being in this hospital room, sitting with this person who's miserable, but I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Like, why is it the right thing to do? And then like, I find myself peeling back layers and going to like my core narrative that says, you know, we're evolved beings. We're hardwired to care about each other. The, 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 the clearest way to flourish is to cultivate loving relationships and, 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 and to pursue kind of this way of life. And I go like, oh, okay, like, and this is the only life I have. I want to make the most of it. The way to make the most of it is by pursuing loving relationships. There's some, there's some pain involved in that. I'm going to stay in the room, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. so there, is, there is a narrative that underlies my behavior my moral code. And when the moral code becomes difficult, it's important for me to know what that narrative is mm -hmm. for me at least. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause I go like, well, why am I even doing this narrative? Why am I even doing this code? And you go like, Oh yeah, yeah. The code sits on top of a foundational narrative. So, so 
to me, when I get together with people, if they don't share that narrative, we're fine when things are good, but when the chips are down and we need to talk each other back into the code, mm -hmm. that's when the narrative becomes really important to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and that's when you, you'll end up in, in challenging conversations. And, and, and that's where, like, if I go to, if I go to church, I want somebody to kind of, as they provide inspirational or motivational or educational information about the code, I want that, I, I want them to go like now, and, you know, remember the code makes sense. You know, it, it lines up with the narrative. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like in your, in your congregation, it would be hard to describe the narrative in which the, the code is rooted. I don't think so. Um, no? We have, no, we do. We have, we have three or four things that um, really guide what it is that we're doing. Every Sunday, um, Scott, my husband, uh, stands up and talks about why we're there together. We're there because we want to remind ourselves that we're grounded in the interconnectedness of life. And what happens when we ground ourselves in the interconnectedness of life is that we have that we are compelled to respond to one another with love, right? Because we're all connected. But then when we're called to respond in, in love, the way one person and another person might respond, you know, interpret that may be very, very different. So when we expose ourselves to those differences, we grow in wisdom. So I get that. I get that. But I go guided, guided, grounded, growing. That's the. But I'm confused when Scott gets up and says. We're here because we want to remind ourselves that we're grounded in the interconnectedness of life. Mm -hmm. And I go like, remind ourselves, like, how do we know that? How do we know that we're grounded in the interconnectedness of life? Seriously? I, well, somebody's going to say, I know that because God created us, the, the intervention Fine, of God. Fine, but that doesn't, that doesn't mitigate the, the next two statements. Right. It doesn't mitigate that if we're grounded in that, whether it's God ordained it or whether we evolved from slime, um, we still have uh, we, we're still compelled to love one another. Right. Not that the God of the Bible suggests that we should love one another very often, um, but there's an awful lot of capricious anger in there. So but but I feel that even most Christians uh, and most of the evangelicals uh, that I know and love would say that. We are challenged to love one another through that message. So that's not mitigated if, if that interconnectedness comes scientifically or, or spiritually, right? And the, okay, and so the, you're right. Yeah. So you're like, you're like, give me interconnectedness and we're off to the races. Yeah. Okay. That's, a, right. good, I'm, I'm, that's I'm, a good place to start. I like that. Okay. Now, now, so, okay. So then you push the like, could we please stop with the interventionist God language? Could we stop praying to a God as if he's going to do something? Right. Like as a church, could we just acknowledge that this isn't where we should be? Um, and that, and then, then there, there, there becomes a battle for the soul of the use of the United Church of Canada. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and for four years, you're, 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 you're in, you're in legal, proceedings and you're you're expending vast sums of time and energy trying to defend yourself and you're being interviewed by every news outlet in Canada. Mm -hmm. And what did you learn? Like 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 at cuz like you and I are friends and like at one point in that process I call you up and I'm like let it go. Just mm -hmm. take your congregation and go pursue loving kindness on your own. And you're like no man, I got to stay in here. I got, you know, this is important. Like we're fighting for, we're fighting for truth and justice in the Canadian way. Um, you know, yep. like, what did you learn in that process? Was um, it worth it? Oh, there's a question. Um, I don't, I, I can't say whether it's worth it at this point. In time. <laughs> I mean, we may be able to say, yes, it is in a couple of years, but right now we're still just trying to get our feedback underneath us. I mean, the work that this congregation has done is, is exemplary, but, um, but we're, you know, I'm four years closer to retirement and, uh, you know, we haven't, yeah, there's a lot that, that needs to be worked out to determine whether it was actually a good idea or not. But, um, but the thing that I have learned, um, and, and Jack Spong actually, I think was one of the first people who reacted when I identified as an atheist. And he said, Greta, 
Greta, help. You're, you're not doing yourself any good here, you know, because people are not going to hear you if you use that label. Now, I took that label on, as, I, as I'm sure you know, in order to be in solidarity with Bangladeshi secular bloggers who were being arrested, being murdered on the streets of Dhaka, uh, being threatened with execution. And, and, and as a good, strong United Church social justice person, who was taught to be in solidarity with people to get arrested, you know, if if there was a reason to get arrested on the streets to, you know, to speak out against injustice. It was, you know, didn't even didn't even occur to me that it would not be a good thing. I mean, my board and I talked about it, um, but it was a it was an action that was again grounded in my United Church history. So I but the thing is, the thing is. Oh, they, shut they, down the conversation. Totally shut I down. I can the see why it would, you know, and, and the funny thing is like, you know, because it wasn't an I am Spartacus moment, you know, like, you, you know, that scene in the, in, in the old Kirk Dows movie where, which one of you is Spartacus and, and everybody, yeah. I am Spartacus, yeah. I am, yeah. you know, and, and, and every, like, they know that the person who's saying I am Spartacus, they know that's not Spartacus, right? But when you say I'm an atheist, it was like, they're going like, yeah, you may say you're saying this just to be in solidarity with the Bangladeshi, but like, you really are an atheist. Yeah. Well, I really am an atheist. And right. One, but one of the problems, this is the thing that I've learned the most is that people are far more comfortable. Um, and this is Brene Brown in her book, Braving the Wilderness, talks about uh, our human propensity for bullshitting. Like when someone says something, we, we want to have an opinion. We want to state our opinion, even if we know nothing about it. And I have watched, you know, theological professors at United Church Theology, Theological Colleges bullshitting about who I am and what I believe. They have no idea. They've never had a conversation with me. But there's a caricature of me out there that they're happy to take down, right? And, and so they do that. And, and I find that very troubling. But that's the biggest thing that I've learned is that people would rather have a conversation with a caricature than actually have a conversation with the person. So that's... A real learning um and there was another thing i wanted to say what was it it's gone uh, anyway that's that's a, <laughs> it's, that's it's, a big it's, thing it's but, funny when you say like the bullshitting thing like people want to have an opinion about something that they don't know anything about i'm like that's the basis of this podcast so like yeah. I, I i object to you saying it you say it like it's a bad thing um <laughs> but uh, okay I, I remember the other thing so on facebook on social media one of my colleagues uh now retired um posted, I would be fine if she was an A-theist, but she's not. She's an atheist. Now, he had also never had a conversation with me, um, and certainly not since I identified as an atheist. Um, but that, that differentiation, the only thing between those two things is bigotry. That's the only difference between A-theist and atheist. Because an A-theist is someone who does not believe in a theistic God, doesn't believe in an interventionist God, doesn't believe in a supernatural God, right? That's what an A-theist is, right? I might be able to come up with some lofty definition that would allow panentheists to embrace me as, uh, you know, many of them would because they delight in that definition. But it's still not interventionist, not supernatural, not going to come and answer my prayers, right? An atheist without the dash in that short phrase is someone who is a hater, arrogant, takes religious people down, um, does not, can't stand uh, uh, Christianity or God like that. And that's bigotry. That's an opinion that is that is grounded in one's own prejudices. And, and it's got nothing to do with the people that I know who would identify themselves as atheists, right? So when people have said, do you wish you'd never called yourself an atheist? I say, yeah, there are some days that I do wish I'd never called myself an atheist. But once I realized the bigotry that was rampant in my denomination, then I said, there's no friggin' way I'm taking back that label. You guys need to deal with it. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's funny to me because like, I like when somebody sort of says like, oh, Greta's one of those, like wants to tear down the Christian world atheists. I go like, 
Are you kidding me? Like, look at her. She's fighting tooth and nail to stay in bed with those people. Like me, like I'm sweet and nice. I never say a bad thing about, about the whole Christian church thing, but like, I don't have to spend any time with those people. Like mm-hmm. I, I don't, I, I'm not engaged. Like, I, I mean, except for the occasional conversation where somebody puts me on a stage with a Christian and says dialogue. And it's easy to be nice in those situations and to be, and to listen and to learn because I don't have to live with those folks, you know, I I don't have to like claim them. Um, And so, you know, so it's always interesting. Like like Greta Vosca, boy, she wrote us to destroy the church. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That woman wants to stay in church. Um, You know, she, she, she wants, she wants to kind of have this, you know, ongoing relationship with these folks and try to, you know, like you're disappointed in your colleagues bigotry. And I go like, that guy's not my colleague anymore. <laughs> That's right. And but it's, it's a lot cleaner. It, it may feel cleaner to you, but it, you know, it challenges me um, to say, I need to get in, in a conversation with that person. One of the theologians from a, from one of the colleges, um, again, goes at me in the, in the observer article about me, which came out this month. And, and again, <laughs> says things that make it clear she has no idea what I believe or why I think this conversation was important, you know? So I, I wonder, should I just send her an email and say, let's have a conversation? Should I phone her up? You know, should I call the principal of the college and say, let's, let's do something here. So there's greater understanding. I don't know, but I but think- she's, she's, she's only even noticing you because you're in a turf war over the UCC. Yeah. If, if but she's it's not, not, it she's doesn't not, need to be a turf war at all. Right, and that's part of the problem that this last four years has done is they, it has allowed the United Church to, to address this in a litigious way instead of, you know, coming in close and finding out why is this so important to this congregation, right? Why are they the only congregation that's thriving in the area? Um, and, all, and we've closed down all the other ones or we've amalgamated them and they're still only hanging on by a thread. Like, why is that congregation still strong? It's not big. It never was big. But we're doing what we're doing. And we draw people from, I mean, some people drive an hour and a quarter just to get to us every Sunday morning, right? So why, why? What's going on there? Let's look at this. But no, you know, we had to do this litigious thing. Now you have an opportunity to look. Now we have an opportunity to have a real conversation. Now all those requests for dialogue that you received from every single level of the church over these past four years, now you can... You can open the gates and let those dialogues, those conversations take place. Because in the end, the resolution was not really a resolution. Like, like on, on some level, like the, the United Church says, we still believe in, you know, the, the leadership said, you know, we reserve the fact we still believe in God. And yet we have a place for this congregation and this person who clearly don't believe in yeah. God. Yeah. And yeah. And that that's so there's a lot of confusion, a lot of anger. Um, a lot of uh, misunderstanding that is still rampant. So we will do what we did before. We will lean in and we will say, let's talk. And when when conversations were denied at every single level, uh, members of the congregation and I traveled across the country. We spoke to well over a thousand people, um, which wasn't enough, but it was a really good number. It was way more than the, than the denomination ever spoke to or allowed the conversation to take place with. And we, and we engaged. And in one of those conversations in Montreal, in fact, um, at the end of it, uh, there had been four people who traveled with me to Montreal. And uh, at the end of it, the woman who made the coffee came up and said that a gentleman who had come in uh, early had expressed what she described as vitriol against me and against what we were doing. And at the end of the evening, he made a point of going over to her and saying to her that he had changed his opinion completely. And he was very encouraged by what we were doing. So that's the kind of thing that happens in dialogue. You know that. I know that. Clearly, the hierarchy in the church still does not know that. Um, But I think that we can, as a congregation, um, keep those conversations flowing. And and I can have conversations with people. I see a letter somewhere and I can respond to it in a positive way. You know, I I hear a podcast that doesn't, you know, that's done by people who have no idea who I am or why we do what we do, I can phone them and have a conversation and I'm not going to hesitate to do that. Yeah. And so, and, and so deep down at the end of the day, I mean, like 
I mean, I mean, I get exhausted just hearing this. I mean, I'm just, I'm just like, wow. That, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, because I'm just, I, I, yeah, I just don't have the energy for that for, to to be in dialogue with, with people that are fighting over that kind of language stuff. But, but here's the thing: I do get it when you, when you, like, when I go back and you go, like, yeah, the real, the thing was after Charlie Hebdo. Church folk were putting out these things like we need to pray to God, like that He will fix this, and you were like, "That's not helpful," you know. And that that's almost like you know being at the funeral of the little child, and sort of when the person's going like, "God, we know you're doing something here. We just don't know what it is." You're like, "Yeah, actually, that's not helpful." Um, and so I understand that like the jumping off point was you saying, "Hey, if we really want to be serious about loving kindness and about justice." We, we've got to stop referring to an interventionist God who either isn't very nice or isn't very uh, attentive. Yeah. Um, is that message still something where you just, where do you feel like that's at the heart of what you're, what you're saying right now is you're like, this God language just isn't helpful to us if we're really serious about love and justice. I, I think that that's important um, for you know, the people in my congregation and people who are, are not religious. Um, but I think there are for people who are religious, that language can still take them in a very positive direction. I mean, people, uh, lots of people who hold on to that language, um, put their lives, uh, to the work of creating justice and, and peace and, and dialogue in the communities that they work in. Sure. I'm not sure, going to sure. slam them. Right. But I do think that, um, as, you know, I live in a country that has uh, a very strong social safety net. You live in a country that has never had one. My country is able to walk away from religion uh, and has and has done it a generation or two earlier than your country will ever do it. Yours will walk away from it only rationally, not because they have their needs met un unless something dramatically changes in your country. And whenever there is socioeconomic insecurity, uh, the, the need for an interventionist deity who is maybe going to make things better for you rises. It becomes a significant and serious and important part of the personal narrative. So I think it's important for us to find that narrative outside of the church, outside of religiosity, outside of faith claims of, of a variety of different, all the different religions. We need to embed that within contemporary secular society so that when things start spinning out of control, as they are going to do very shortly, um, if you don't already recognize that they're doing that, um, so we can have those conversations without resorting to deities, right? And, and, and that puts our shoulder to the wall and helps all of us get at that work in a way that we need to get at it instead of just retreating. Yeah, uh, you, and, sound like an, you sound like a, a sec, like I, I talk to these Alcoholics Anonymous people and they end up saying like, listen, you know, my higher power is this group, you know, where they say, you know, they, they sort of like the, they got, they got in it thinking their higher power is this something out there. And then in the end they go like, there's nobody out there helping me. It's this group. And it sounds like what you're saying is, is that in the absence of a social safety net, um, people then look for help out there and you're, you're sort of like, yeah, we, we're going to have to create some kind of a structure where people go like my, the, the only safety is each other. And, and we've got to, you know, and, and so when the times get rough, we have to have not only a language, but practices of being together that enable us to mm -hmm. overcome the difficulties that we all face to, you know, together. Absolutely. And that's the beauty of, um, religious communities. That's what they've done. The off-label benefits of religion have been um, stunningly high levels of subjective well-being. And that subjective well-being has translated to social capital. It has translated to philanthropy, to uh, the running, the creation and running of charities, to a greater voter turnout, to uh, communities shoveling the snow for somebody on their, on their street who, you know, is unwell. Like it, if you're not, if you don't have a strong subjective well-being, one, you you suffer and you struggle. 
Um, churches did that and did it well. I know it's funny. It's funny because like I have this group here in Cincinnati of people. We were having potluck dinners together. We we're doing all these different things together, book groups and things. And finally, a bunch of the the kind of the the, the key people were like, you know what, this is all good and well, but uh, I I, I want to. Could we get together on a Sunday morning and? read some poetry yep. and, and play some music and have somebody give a talk that is overtly mm-hmm. inspirational. Like we, 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 we kind of miss that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and we need that. At the end of our service on Sunday, our, our vocalist who is just a brilliant singer, she's just nothing like you would not, she's more of a contemporary Christian sound singer than a church singer, you know, like not a, an operatic, but she's anyway, she sang Sarah Burrell, um, brave. I just want you to be brave. Right. And, and we were talking about leadership and where we go now that we're finished this and what do we do and what are the risks? And, you know, that's what I talked about. Um, and then she stood up and sang that song and, you know, we could hardly breathe at the end of it. You know, it was so compelling. Right. And, and we need opportunities for that. That's, and, and I, that's why I stay in the church. Right. Because I, I want the church to do that. And I want them to reach out to the community, to the people they've turned their back on for the last 50 years and say, you know what? We're sorry you're gone. Let's find a place for you now because we can do this thing. We can do it together. They'll never come back. I have no illusions about mm-hmm. that. But um, and, I'm, and I'm not going to fight with you. Like, 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 cause you know, I want you and I want to sit in the same room and listen to the same song mm-hmm. and, and we want to hear the same message and we want to be challenged in the same way. And I'm not going to, you're like, I'm going to stay in the church and I'm going to fight to transform that into, into this. Well, I'll tell you what I really want. I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to start from scratch and I'm going to try to see if we can create something like that. But like, I'm not going to fight with you about whether or not it's worth the time. Right. But Bart, what we need, and this is what, this is what I want to do over the next you know, few years that I have left in the work that I'm doing. I want to inspire uh, liberal communities, liberal congregations across the states. And and most people in the states don't even know there are liberal congregations in the states. Right? Like I just, they don't even know they're there. But I but I've spoken to some of them. I was in Arizona uh, last year and in and in Georgia, and I was talking to these groups that are predominantly elderly. Not elderly, but older than sixty-five. No, right? they're like, yeah, they're aging. They're yeah. aging, the, and they belong to these congregations, and and they believe that we need to move forward somehow. And so, I want to speak to those communities. And the last, when I have been speaking to them, I, I I'm giving them a fall on your sword lecture, and I I talk about how they need to find ways to support the creation of communities that want exactly what those members of your community are saying. We need that inspirational gathering. We need to be compelled uh, by a message that that makes our lives feel bigger than they are and that draws us together. So so I so I end up, I want to end up with congregations across North America that that say we're willing to, we're willing to fall on our swords. We're willing to give if a secular community connects with you and says we want to make a community happen in you know, whatever that city is in whatever state. Yeah, and I say, man. I've got oh, a, my. I've got a United Church of Christ that is willing to give you space, provide you leadership and, and fund you so you can become something vibrant and important in our community. That's the work I want to do over the next few years. Right. Because I think start, that work start, is in important. C- start in Cincinnati. Cause my gang needs a space to meet. Okay. Tell me a yes, congregation and I'll go. I, I, I'll go find you a liberal congregation. Perfect. All right. Okay. That'd be excellent. Okay. I would love hey, that. Thanks for talking with me. It's been lovely. And Bart, thanks for your patience with me. I know that, I know that, <laughs> that these past few years, I can remember standing outside was my mother-in-law's hospital room. Um, and we had a long conversation on the phone and, and <laughs> you said, skip skip it all. Just go straight to the formal hearing, get it over with. Right. And I said, I can't, I've got a whole congregation that's in this with me. And you understood. Um, you didn't agree, but you understood. And so you gave me support and care and love, uh, through, you know, what's been a really challenging time. So thank you for that.
All right, there you go. That was me and Greta Vosper. You can find all the stuff at the place where you'd find all the stuff. You can reach out to me. I really am interested in those chain stories if you got them. I really am. And uh, yeah, you know what? I, I, I think I might have rambled on too much at the beginning, so I'm not going to ramble on too much here at the end. I'm just going to say thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for sticking with me. Um, we're going to keep getting better. And I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search humanize me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life.